Welcome to Eurocron, a podcast about people whose names you may not be familiar with now, but you will remember their stories. Hi, I'm Scott Pitney, the host for Eurocron. So, without further ado, let's jump right into our next extraordinary story. As you mentioned earlier, you spent a great deal of time in China, including Wuhan, China, which, of course, has been in the news a lot lately. Unfortunately, um, now known as as the birthplace of COVID-19 to many, your writings about China in general are very positive. What was your experience like living in China? And what are some things about Wuhan, especially that the media perhaps aren't telling us? Well... That's a really good question because um, I am positive, yes. And growing up, you know, I I grew up back uh, in the Cold War where we had drills, where we had to uh, uh, hunch over and hide under our desk as if that was going to protect us from a nuclear explosion. (laughs) Yeah, right. But of course, we were little kids. We didn't know nothing, so, you know. We were hunkered down in the hall or that and under a desk or what. So, and I always thought that stuff was sort of silly, sort of stupid. Um, and I'm, uh, I'm sort of a rebel in that way. You, you may or may, because you were young, you may or may not have recognized that in being on my teams that I didn't coach or think like everybody else. I did things my my own way, what I thought would work for uh-huh. people. And then when I uh, stopped, when I went to Southeast Asia, I was on uh, China Air, which is out of Taiwan. So I had a free stop coming home if I wanted to stop there. Because, of course, they want to spend your American dollars. So I thought, what the heck, I'll stop in Taipei. So I was in Taipei for a couple of weeks, and I took local subways and buses there, and I was off with my guidebook to see different things. I went north to a little town up on the coast and wandered to some different places and went to, by the way, if you get to Taipei, the greatest museum in perhaps in the world, if not the single greatest one of them, is the museum there in Taipei. It's huge and goes through, you know, the 5,000-year history of China. Mm. Now, why is that in Taipei instead of Beijing? Because when the Shanghai Czech and his troops fled the country from, from Mao, they raped the country of all its artifacts mm. and they're all in this museum in Taipei. But walking through that, I mean, I was amazed. We were, you know, a 200 year old country and I'm looking at stuff that's over 5,000 years old and such. And it all made me think, shoot, I got to go to mainland China. I got to see this for myself. Plus, I felt very comfortable in Taipei. Uh, I liked the food. A lot of things I was eating um, were quite different in America, but but I loved them all. Um, and if I thought something looked dicey, you know, I just didn't eat it. But the Chinese, um, I discovered, are big on noodles and rice. The Yangtze River runs sort of down the center of China. Uh-huh. And it sort of is the unofficial dividing line between north and south. The north, they eat uh, more noodles because they grow wheat and what have you. And the south, which is warmer, they eat more rice. But where I was in Wuhan was right smack in the center of the country in a mix of cultures. So I got places that serve northern-style food, southern-style food. And uh, growing up, I ate a lot of noodles and rice. I always liked noodles and rice. 
So as they were the basis, um, I, I had no trouble eating there. But one thing to note, the Chinese love spicy food. And when I say spicy, your Mexican food in Texas is nothing. <laughs> I mean, the stuff there is two, three times as hot or more in China. Mm. You know, fortunately, I like Mexican food, so that saved me too. Mm-hmm. But when I went to China and started teaching, and Wuhan was just, I had four choices, and I had a, a nephew who had been to Wuhan on some student tour or whatever for a couple of weeks. And when I told him I had to choose between these four cities, he says, oh, Wuhan, go to Uncle Bob, go to Wuhan. So I said, okay, I'll go to Wuhan. And I was glad I did because Wuhan is a typical Chinese city. It has no Western influence. Um, where Beijing, of course, the capital has some Western influence. Uh-huh. Shanghai had quite a bit of Western influence. And Hong Kong, Hong Kong is a joke. Hong Kong is not China. Yeah. Hong Kong is Hong Kong. Uh-huh. It's just a Chinese New York. It's just like New York, all big buildings walk around, except they're speaking mostly Chinese. Yeah. So uh-huh. I, I never, the few times I was in Hong Kong, I, I really didn't like it. I liked the real China. And the students I dealt with were from cities all around China because Wuhan is the, um, the Chinese have a different way of doing universities. You know, like we would have, or you would have Texas and East Texas State and West Texas and North Texas and all this. Right. They don't do it that way. The Chinese pick educational centers. And Wuhan was the educational center for that area of the country. And they have um, 56 universities in Wuhan alone. But their universities there specialize. Now, a university is still a university in that it offers everything, okay, Mm -hmm. all the options. Mm-hmm. Like we we offered all the majors, but um, you are often named after the thing that is your your most significant one, the thing that you're known for is maybe the best in China. For example, we you could major at electrical engineering or mechanical engineering, whatever at my school, but we were known for fashion and textile. So we were Wuhan Textile University because our fashion program was considered to be the number two school of fashion in China. And our textile program was considered to be the number one in China. Hmm. Now, how do I back that up? Well, the students have talent shows the fashion and design majors in uh, every spring. And I would go to these talent shows because as a faculty, I was allowed to do that, even though that wasn't my necessarily my area, but some of these students were in my classes. Well, when you go to a talent show at Wuhan Textile University, there are buyers there from France, from Germany, from the Netherlands, from all over Europe, who come to see what our university and our fashion students have developed and turn in their orders. Hmm. I mean, it was just incredible. Yeah. Now, I'm drawing a blank at the moment. You know that that material that was discovered some years back that you can wear that... Uh, keeps you warm in winter and cool in summer and you don't sweat or anything and the breathable type thing that the athletes yeah are now. yeah i can't recall the name as well but i know exactly where what you're talking about i actually have a few uh, articles hey. of clothing with that material so that was developed on my university by the head of our textiles department wow 
So we have things that are are known worldwide, which is why it's called Wuhan Textile University. Um, do you, when I was at Tennessee, again, I divert, but it's all related. Sure. When I, <laughs> when I was at Tennessee, I worked a couple of years as a volunteer counselor with the Lady Vols basketball. So I got to know Pat Summit a little. I even got to play some intramural softball with Pat Summit. Oh, neat. But her, they won several national championships while I was there. And their point guard was a beautiful blonde girl named uh, um, Mar- Michelle Marciniak, mm-hmm. who they called Spinderella because of her spin moves and had run the basket. <laughs> well, Spinderella, Michelle and I became friends. Matter of fact, she's the only lady ball that was ever in my apartment in the four years of Tennessee. She was so popular that she said my apartment was the only place she could escape to where nobody bothered her so she could work on papers and such. (laughs) One time I asked her, what are you working on? She says, well, I'm doing a paper on how the menstrual cycle affects uh, women athletics. And I chuckled, I said, Michelle, I probably can't help you much with that one. (laughs) (laughs) But in any case, I'm in China and I'm staying in touch with her by email. And you may have seen these uh, commercials on TV now. Uh, I think they're called like Sheeks, S-H-E-E-X. It's supposed to be the most comfortable bedwear you've ever used and whatever. Uh-huh. Well, that's uh, the company started by her and, and her partner. And um, matter of fact, she's the blonde in the commercials. Oh, cool. And they were looking for a place to manufacture it. So I'm... Uh, putting her in touch with several options in China that they followed up on. And that, so that, that gets into the China story. But then um, during the time I was in China, like I started, I tended like most people to stay one year and see China move on. Well, I loved it so much. My kids loved me so much, begging me to stay so I thought, ah, oh, what the heck? I like it here. I'll stay another year. Now, mind you, I was, I think, um, when I went over in 2006, I was already 64. Mm. So I'm sitting there staying another year and another year and another year and another year. Uh, huh. But I just loved it. And each time... I got a free round trip to my home country every year paid for, for the university. So I would go back to America for two weeks in summer and then I go back to China because I chose to spend my time seeing more of China. So I managed over the time to get into uh, all but one of the provinces. So I wandered far and wide. Sometimes I would have a student with me, for example, if I was traveling to a uh, Xi'an, and I had a student that lived in Xi'an. She would tell me, Mr. Albert, when you come to Xi'an, you know, uh, I had a Chinese cell phone, whatever. You call me or a day ahead, warn me, I will meet you and I will show you my city. So oftentimes I had student guides wandering around and what have you. And um, the reason this teachers are treated entirely different in China. Hmm. And that's part of the story. The Chinese word for teacher is lao shi. Now, that means wise old person. Now, think of that. They look at their teachers as wise old people. Here in America, our kids look at teachers, uh, you're an old man, you don't know anything about today's world. Mm. It's not the way it is in China. I remember um, one student coming up to me and saying, Mr. Robert, based on your many years of experience, how would you handle this situation? And then explain it to me. Hmm. Can you imagine a student in the U.S. coming up to a teacher and saying, sir, based on your many years of experience, how would you handle this? No. 
<laughs> it's just an entirely different world. They work so hard compared to America's students. You look at what's going on in our country today. You look at the high schools in almost uh, the large majority of schools. The valedictorian, salutatorian are all of Asian descent or Indian descent hmm. because they come from a culture of learning. Yeah. To me, it's such a joke when, well, the moron we have in office now <laughs> will, you know, try to blame things on China or whatever. You know, nothing is China's fault looking for a scapegoat. We make our own decisions. If a company chooses to, for example, manufacture something in China or buy something from China, China didn't make them do that. It's not China's fault. They chose to do that for whatever reason, call it taxes, price, whatever. Mm -hmm. But they chose to do that. China didn't say, oh, you must come and do that. So blaming them is just stupid. You know, you, you have to... That's like uh, blaming the other team that you lost. Right. No, you have to do better. Right. You have to make the adjustments and hustle that to do better. Yep. During my, I don't remember my first or second year in China, but I had, and um, my students, even though I always tried to learn their Chinese names, they would all use an English name because my students were studying English to improve their prospects for jobs and international positions. Now, do American students study a sudden, a sudden language to improve their jobs, opportunities for international positions? Damn few. There, they start studying English in third grade. I was teaching postgraduate master's students. Most of those students could wander America freely and speak very good English. Uh, 25, 30% of them would sound like Native Americans. 10% maybe would struggle a little. The rest somewhere in between. But hmm. they worked at it. Yeah. Um, I had this girl, her English name was Vidi. One time she wrote a poor paper, and this was in the spring semester. Um, and I said, Vivi, what happened? Because you always write such good papers. And this was very poor. And she says, I know, Mr. Robert, I'm sorry. I'll do better. That was like on a Tuesday. And on Thursday, Vivi phones me and says, Mr. Robert, my mother is coming to visit me tomorrow. She would like to speak with you. Can you meet me outside the teacher's canteen at 12 noon? Hmm. And I said, okay, sure. And I thought, oh, you know, is this going to be like America where the mother's yelling at me for, you know, our student not doing well and what have you? It's like it's my fault. No, I get there. And, of course, the mother spoke only Chinese. And I, I could say, you know, hello. And she says something back, and Vivi says, I will translate for my mother. And um, her mother says something, and Vivi says to me, my mother says she wishes to apologize for her daughter writing a poor paper. Wow. And, and has made me promise that I will never do it again. Yeah. That's parental support. That's what these kids have at home. When they go to university, they're expected not to waste their time. They're expected to use the university to study, to graduate, to get a good job, and to make their parents and family proud. There is no, you know, the Chinese characters? Yes. There is no character for I. There is no I in the Chinese language. Interesting. Everything is we. They refer to things as we, the family, etc. And sometimes in class, I would see students working together in something that I'd sort of assigned 
my first year as individual projects. Uh-huh. And I soon learned they were not cheating. This was the Chinese way. It was always we. We always looked together to better ourselves, to improve ourselves in the project. Now, you got to remember these, what I'll call people who are just ignorant of history and math, that will make comments about Chinese as a communist nation. No, it's not. It's a socialist nation. Communist is the name of the party just like Democrat or Republican. Socialism is their system of government, frankly, just like ours is, because the definition of socialism is the government controls the things that are good for all the people and the rest of the things that uh, are individual decisions are made by the people themselves. We're the same thing here, Medicare, Social Security, uh, uh, Workman's Comp, um, uh, VA hospitals, uh, to name a thousand things that are all socialists. Uh-huh. What, what we argue about is how much should be run by the government, how much should be, quote, individual freedom. But because the Chinese have no word for I, they have a group think in their entire philosophy. Um, If I can find it, I may send you later something called the spirit of the Chinese people that I bought and read my first year over there. It was written like a hundred years ago and it's still very, very accurate. But so you learn why they think the way they do. Whereas in America, you know, all we do is yell the word freedom and march around with, with our guns. You know, and in China, the only place I was ever had an attempted mugging on me was in downtown Houston, Texas. Yeah. Uh, I was perfectly safe everywhere in China because there's there's no guns except policemen and soldiers. Yeah. And the people like it that way. Mm-hmm. Plus, keep in mind, China has four times our population. And the country is only a little bigger than ours area-wise. Four times our population. Right. Now, can you imagine all the crap that we have in America and all these different weird groups? Can you imagine them trying to have all those freedoms in a country four times as big? It would be unmanageable. Hmm. Four times the problems. Yeah. So, So the system that the Chinese have makes sense for them and they understand that that because we are so many people we need this centralized control yeah just like um they accepted the one child policy for that group of years nobody complained they accepted it because they understood that our country cannot get any larger because we can't feed our people right so now that child policy has been dropped now because the people understand it. And most of them still only have one child. Some have two, what have you. But everything that Chinese did in their government, just like their massive shutdown of Wuhan to get this virus under control, which they've now done, is because their government takes action and the people understand why the government takes action. The um, uh, our our central government takes no action, and thus, you know, we have nothing under control, which scares the hell out of us old people. You know, we're at a higher percentage of dying. Right. I mean, I've only left my house four times in the last sixty-one days, hmm. and these are quick grocery runs. Yeah, understandable. But I learned to understand the Chinese people and the Chinese system. Mm -hmm. And that was by staying for five years. I kept learning. Teachers would come over in September, start a school for one year and leave at the end of school, beginning of June. And on the weekends, they go have a beer with their American friends. They don't learn a damn thing about China. Mm. Um, So I chose to deeply learn 
Um, I remember during my second and third year, I remember students come up to me and saying, Mr. Robert, you have a Chinese heart. You have learned to understand the Chinese people. And I can't tell you how proud that made me feel because I had worked at it sometimes in class. And oh God, this happened every year, many times. Some student would ask me, why did the Western newspapers say such strange things about us? Those are not true. And I would look at him and I would try to explain. I know, I says, I understand China. I know they aren't true, but the Western press, um, you know, has a system of sensationalizing, saying something that may or may not have any truth. Now, did this virus start in Wuhan? Probably, but to blame it on the Wuhan people, you know, it's just stupid. As scientists say, it happened to start in Wuhan because uh, a particular bat, which is where all, almost all viruses originate, uh, bit into some food that somebody ended up eating and blah, 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 blah. Just like we don't call Ebola, African Ebola or things like that. It's just what happened. Yeah. So Wuhan uh, was unfortunate. Matter of fact, when that was first announced, uh, I have um, a jacket, that, uh, actually one of those sweat jackets, you zip up, put it, that says Wuhan Textile University in the back and Wuhan China in the front. I started that wearing that around when I went shopping. Now it's got too hot to wear because I wanted people to ask me and say I was proud of Wuhan. Mm. Now the kids treated me, I mean, so wonderful. They, they, what we would call date their teachers. They don't actually do that, <laughs> but they spend time with their teachers just like a date because they like to spend time and they would spend time with their English teacher uh, because they wanted to practice and improve their English. They would spend time with um, whoever their major advisor was um, because they wanted to uh, improve in that particular field they were trying to get jobs in and such, ha such have you. Um, so I would have female students come up to me and say, Robert, will you go to dinner and a movie with me tomorrow night? I said, okay. <laughs> now, the first time that happened, I was like, what's going on here? You know, Because <laughs> um, I'm 64, 65, and my student is like 22 or whatever. But I learned that's what they do because they want to spend time to improve. This is why when I went to the city, they wanted to spend time with me, not just to show off their city, but to get my reaction uh, and to continue to improve their English. So they're always working, working to improve. And as a teacher or as a coach, you always love, and to me, coaching and teaching are the same thing. Mm. You always love the people you're working with, working to improve. So I gained so much respect for them uh, because of that. They were always working to improve. Yeah. Um, each year, and my, I had a fancy title, um, Director of Postgraduate English Programs or something like that, I forget. But I had four Chinese English teachers who ended up being my best friends over there, actually five of them that, that worked under me or with me because I never considered either boss, but with me trying to make them better English teachers, just as I would do some weekend seminars for all of the uh, teachers involved in English to make them better teachers. I was so proud when I was back two years ago, and maybe I'll send you that email, um, when I gave the presentation and then afterwards they had um, a presentation for me for because my book had come out uh, in Chinese 
and all these different things. And the vice president of the university, uh, Madame Wong was her name. She told me that I didn't just contribute to my students, that by my teaching and writing of a textbook, which was published in China about teaching English, that I had made all of the teachers at the university better teachers and that I should be very proud of that. And I was. It really made me feel good. That is awesome. Yes, please. Uh, I, I would I would love to see that. That I appreciate you offering to share that. That's uh... Well, they love you. And, you know, when somebody loves you, you love them back. Remember, and I know you do, remember when I took all of you guys on a camp out up to San Houston State Park? You know, we went to camp just like the big boys before the season started. Uh-huh. And we had our two days. But in between, you know, you know, swam and goofed around and uh, did whatever it is you did. Um, and uh, uh, your dad and uh, Mr. Prez, and that came, of course, as counselors and the great fun we had. But we made you feel important. Yes. And when we taped ankles in the back of my orange pickup for the games you probably didn't really need to tape your ankles but it made you all feel important oh that's Um, awesome we'll be right back Today's episode is sponsored by Pitney Properties. Pitney Properties provides real estate services to buyers and sellers located in and around the Houston area. Having been raised in Texas, LeBon Pitney is incredibly well-versed in the area's housing market and always manages to find her clients those hidden gems that other agents tend to overlook. LeBon's relentless style and integrity allow her to hold client satisfaction at her highest priority. She works hard to make the entire home buying and selling experience as is productive and enjoyable as possible. Whether her clients are first-time buyers or seasoned investors, LeBon works tirelessly to accommodate their needs and exceed their expectations. To learn more about LeBon's real estate services, please don't hesitate to call her today at 713-805-8871. That's 713-805-8871. Or contact LeBon at sold at Pitney Properties. didn't know you were doing it for that reason then that that is really neat to hear that well i had worked um because i had a double major in physical education and social sciences i had worked an internship in um a training room at ball ball state and i used to tell people hey i've taped pros um one of them always asked for me to tape him I taped a guy named Larry Hamill who got drafted by the Dallas Cowboys, but only played a little in preseason and got cut. But I taped one pro who uh, made his entire life in, uh, playing professional baseball. He was also drafted by the Cowboys, but chose to play baseball instead. A guy named Merv Redden. I don't know if you remember him or not, but... He played in World Series of both the Cincinnati Reds and the Baltimore Royals. Oh, wow. His third, his third year in the league, he hit 318 with 28 home runs and finished third in the American League. Um, uh, he was a star halfback and uh, actually a catcher in college, although he played outfield in the pros. Um, but Merv and I were buddies. Uh, matter of fact, I talked to him by phone a couple weeks ago. Um he uh, came to the training room, always asked for me to tape his ankles. I have no idea why, but for whatever reason, he liked the way I tape them. 
So I learned to tape a good ankle. And so what did it cost to do that to kids? You know, half an hour and a couple rolls of tape, big deal. Made y'all feel important. Yeah. It gave you. And when you feel important, you have confidence. I am good. I remember saying to Tom and Lonnie and um, Steve a few weeks ago, or it was November now, months ago when they were here, I said, did you ever go into a game believing we would lose? He says, no. Every time we walked on the field, we expected to win. I says, that's right. Because that's what we tried to make you, confident in yourself and believing we couldn't lose. Not cocky, but just confident. So that's uh, coaching and teaching is also psychological. It's not just knowledge of the subject. Um, and when I used to train teachers, and I've done this in South America and the Czech Republic and other places besides China, but I told them, first of all, teaching is an art. And what kind of art in it is it? And, you know, they'd have trouble answering. Finally, one person would get it right. It's a performance art. That's right. It's like a performing art. You're in the theater. You're on stage. The crowd is watching you. You are in the spotlight. Are you going to perform to make them so interested that they are wrapped attention to your performance? Or are you going to be so boring talking in a monotone that everybody falls asleep? <laughs> it's a performing art. Coaching, teaching, to said the same thing, are performing arts. So I was unlike, because most of the Chinese teachers traditionally droned. I was like a, a breath of fresh air to them. And I teachers I taught, I taught them how to perform, how to make it more interesting for their students. Each year, I was responsible for putting on an English show. An English show meant we were going to put on a theatrical stage production entirely in the English language. Um, so, with my students, and generally I used four of my English teachers, uh, Rebecca, Christy, Sophia, and Ellen, um, I would pick out four plays, and some of them I wrote myself, like um, uh, four Chinese princesses seek for um, princes or... Um, um, uh, um, play about the Chinese zodiac and different animals and what have you. Uh -huh. And, but most of them I would use stories they they knew. For example, uh, Cinderella, which was called Spinderella and the Royal Ball, um, Snow White, and the Seven Short People. You know what have you? <laughs> uh, um. Uh, the Wizard of uh, uh, Oz Chengdu, which is a province in China or whatever. Uh, but Allison in, in, uh, um, in Beijing land or whatever. But we would um, we'd pick out sounds where they, they roughly knew the story because even though they'd read it in Chinese in their childhood, but they knew these stories. So even the people in the audience whose English wasn't that good could understand the story and what we were doing. And we and each of my teachers got to handle one of the plays. Like uh, if we wanted to do a light one, we also do a, um, The Three Little Pigs and the Big Bad Wolf. Or we would expand it and make it The Three Little Pigs and The, the Three Bad Wolves or what have you. Mm. Um, so we would do these and my teachers would supervise each play and I would go around rotating from play to play and I would make suggestions and show them how to do something, how to perform. And I even added um, music where I'd have like three or four singers 
at the back of the stage who in certain short breaks would do like a 20, 30 second riff of a Beatles song or a doo-wop number from the 60s and stuff. And so I get as many students involved as possible. And my technical students I would have working uh, the lights and the, um, the screen in the background where we use background what have you. Well, they would do these and we would practice uh, outside of class hours for about a month. And then we'd go on stage and we would do these for 300 to 400 people. And we would always make them funny. Our plays weren't serious. Mm. Um, um, uh, I, did, I wrote one about um, Las Vegas uh, um, with a Chinese couple getting married by Chinese Elvis. <laughs> um, so we would do all these different things. And I would tell my students, you are, I would write the basic words. I said, you are to learn the basic words the first week and practice that. But then I want you whenever possible to put your own personality into the words. You can change them as much as you like to have just so they're roughly the same meaning to follow the play. I want you to design your own costume and all this. Cool. Every year, the seven dwarfs look different. Every year, spin the round <laughs> look different. The girl I had playing the, the witch the first year, uh, her English name was Apple, and I, I just loved Apple. Mm. Um, when, when she played the combination queen-witch and turned into the witch, I mean, she did some fabul fabulous things. Like, you know, when she's the queen, she's marching before the mirror with her you know, very proud and high with her breast up high and all that, which, mm. of course, were balloons added. <laughs> and um, and then when she went to the pot, you know, first when she killed the mayor, who died, of course, very spectacularly, um, and then she would go to the pot and stir, uh, you know, the magic potions, mm. and she would she would push her breasts down, and she'd look up the audience after she pushed them down and you know witches are old ladies <laughs> and capo <laughs> so but she put her personality into it and she's just incredible and every one of these would put their personality into it the singers would come dressed um as a three or four person you know trio like you would see on tv from the 60s or um what have you Mm -hmm. So they would put so much personality into it. And I remember one of my students, uh, Ellen, and when Spinderella, the two ugly stepsisters were always boys. And of course, when they entered the stage, when when the, the wicked old lady stepmother called her beautiful daughters on the stage, and these two would walk on. I mean, the audience literally was rolling out of their seats. And, you know, we'd always pick two boys who were absolutely the wildest and class, craziest boys, and would do this. And some of the things they did were just incredible. And later on, when they had the dance with the prince at the Royal Ball, the things they did, I, if I can get them to you properly, I'll send you some of those videos, which aren't the greatest quality, but you can maybe see some of it. But I remember one of the teachers. That'd be great. Um, one of my male teachers, Franklin, his name was. Ironically, while I was, right after I left, Franklin spent uh, six months um, uh, studying in America to improve his English at um, the University of Tennessee where I put him in touch with several of my old friends there. But when I gave him an easy play, because the year he did it, I gave him the, the three pigs, and the, we made it three big bad wolves. And, of course, the pigs and wolves with no judo and what have you. Um, 
because he he I could see he wasn't that enthused about it. But after the plays were over, he wrote me and said, Robert, he says, thank you for that wonderful experience. I never thought, he said, when we began, I thought this was a stupid idea and nothing would work. But I could not believe that my students could do this and perform so well and make people laugh. And I can't tell you how many students afterward would tell me, Robert, that was such fun. I would never believe I could talk in English to a big crowd of people and make them laugh. Oh, that's great. Then what was I doing for them? Giving them what? Yeah. Confidence. Confidence. Yeah. Belief in themselves. So everything you do as a teacher and coach is about building confidence. So this is where I learn to love them and they in turn learn to love me. The other person on the cover of my book, that's my cousin Herb. Uh -huh. He's the only relative, him and his wife came to visit me in China during my five years there. Hmm. Well, my, my, he will live forever because he was 10 days older than me and he died about 10 days ago. Um, but he will live forever on the cover of my book. And that's sort of important to me also. Very much. Um, Coach, this has been an amazing conversation. Um, I uh, really appreciate the time and, and the stories and uh, your philosophies on, on teaching and coaching and, and life in general. And um, we come to what we call now on your cron, our legacy question. So, say in a hundred years from now, someone is listening to this recording. What do you want to tell them? What do you want to tell them? Perhaps, uh, they, what would you like them to remember about you or perhaps life in general? Well, my students in China said there are five words they will always remember from me. Um, and the first two words are pay attention. I used to tell my students, everybody in the room knows something you don't know. Everybody in the room knows something I don't know because we all had different experiences, different things. Mm -hmm. So you grow by paying attention to everyone you meet and everything you hear. Sometimes it will not seem important, sometimes it will, but you will not know if you don't pay attention first. So if Johnny over here only hears 50% of what I say, he only learns 50%. If Jane over here listens to 75% of what I say, she learns 50% more than Johnny. And if Tom over here listens to 100%, he will be twice as smart as Johnny and 33% smarter than Jane. So in everything you do, pay attention. And then the other three words they tell me, that I tell them to always remember, is practice, practice, practice. If you want to get better at English, you practice, practice, practice. It is no different than anything you do in life. If you are an electrical engineer, you come a bit better by practice, practice, practice. If you are a ping pong player, you get better by practice, practice, practice. And I used to play ping pong with all my students. Matter of fact, um, the Chinese reputation for ping pong is accurate. You can't uh, believe how good I got playing with all these people. <laughs> I, I played with some girls who could beat most men in the U.S. But um, one of the biggest kicks I got is I had a boy named Alex, and his major was political science socialism. 
his goal was to be a government official and to become president of the country. One day, I walked by a classroom where Alex happened to be standing in front of the classroom giving a presentation in English um, to uh, one of his socialism classes. Like I said, they all practice English and everything uh-huh. to get better. Because uh-huh. even in technical degrees, many of their textbooks are in English, so they work at it. But as I walked by, I was going somewhere else. I wasn't really listening. But I heard, I saw Alex at the corner of my eye, and I heard him say to the class, it's like Mr. Robert tells us, pay attention and practice, practice, practice. <laughs> I started smiling and <laughs> thinking, my God, there's my number one communist student quoting me <laughs> in front of his socialist class. That's great. Those, those are the five words. If you want to become better and succeed in life, pay attention and practice, practice, practice. I love it. So much good stuff there, Coach. Um, thank you again so much for, for being on. Uh, you have some amazing stories, and I'm sure we, we only got the tip of the iceberg. So uh, perhaps we could do this again sometime? Oh, anytime. You know, it's not like I don't have a, a, busy, have a busy schedule. <laughs> when you're old and retired, few people want to talk to you. So I, I apologize for rambling a bit oh no no that's uh Um, i i I love it i love it oh yeah i have your your email at scott crom whatever yes all right i'll send you some of that stuff that i keep and i sent i don't know i think tom maybe has some of it i don't know when somebody asks i do anyway it's been it's been a pleasure for me to be able to speak with one of my old students it's always a pleasure to hear from them and know that they're doing well Lonnie gave me a football um when they were here an orange football painted with our record and all this stuff and and on the white stripes around it he told me to to put the number on of every former Comanche that uh, I've talked with over these years and so far I have 14 numbers on there and um, hopefully I'll add more oh, that's amazing that is amazing well coach you can add my number now and uh, thank you again for for the time and um, I, I really really enjoyed that really appreciate my it pleasure. my pleasure Scott 